Whenever there's a new moon looming on the horizon, I'll inevitably get a call from someone saying, Chris, how about that sucker? I'll usually say something cordial like, it's a marvelous night for a moon dance, or I wonder what old sun young moon is up to tonight. But knowing how we've been tossing and turning for fear of where our dreams may be taking us, I'm not about to pretend that that man and that moon has our best interests at heart. No way. He's too much of a kidder. So until the big fella packs his bags and hits the road, put away those sharp utensils and stay close to your loved ones, if you're lucky enough to have any. I'll see you in the morning, folks, or the moonlight, whichever comes first. It's good old Chris in the morning for you. This is the third episode starting off with Chris in the morning, right? Oh, I haven't been keeping track. Uh, I, I I read that, by the way, just because uh, I don't think we could play the soundbite um, for fear of... Uh, Copyright. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not. We would have got a cease and desist letter so fast. What's playing in the background is Moon River by it's the cover from I think it's Louis Armstrong, it? right? It kind of sounds like Louis Armstrong, right? Yeah, it has to be because of that distinctive voice of his. Um, but just a standard jazz tune, Moon River, definitely not um Royalty-free music. Oh, gosh, no. (laughs) I love Moon River, though. I've been having it stuck in my head the entire day ever since watching this episode. Wow. Yeah, and I'm so glad that Moon River is being played throughout the entire episode, like different renditions of it. Yeah, it does does come back. Um, Yeah, just really nice tone setting here. Very kind of like cozy, sleepy environment. It it reminds me a lot of um, the movie uh, The Fog, John Carpenter's The Fog. Really? There's a a big, uh, one of the major characters is like a sort of a late night radio DJ. And I'm sure this is, uh, those aren't the only two characters on on film to do that before. But uh, it's a very comfy sort of trope, you know? You know, I never thought about this, but is Chris always in the radio station from sun up to sundown? Because it looks like it's pretty deep in the night where he's speaking. Yeah, so actually in this episode... um, he does mention, um, or he's kind of caught off guard because he's been, um, he's pre-recorded his show like on tape delays. So mm-hmm. he's not actually in the studio. He's playing like a pre-recorded thing. Um, but the subject of like when he's supposed to be at work, quote unquote, like in the office does come up in this episode. Um, maybe we should uh, give a quick introduction. This is Northern Exposure that we're talking about. Episode eight It's the season finale of season one. Oh man, season finale. <laughs> it's called The Aurora Borealis, or maybe it's called Aurora Borealis. It's it has a lot of titles as I kind of we talked about this last episode in yeah, preparation was, for this. What was the alternate title? It was Aurora Borealis um in parentheses The Grown-Up. So yeah, yeah, uh Aurora Borealis a fairy tale for grown-ups. A fairy or, tale for grown-ups. Or also yeah. Uh, Aurora Borealis, a fairy tale for big people. But I think the DVD just just listed as Aurora Borealis. I think it even drops the V. I don't even know if there's a V on it. Maybe I'm just putting you know, that on there. I posed this question on the last episode. I was asking you, do you think there's a difference between the term grown-ups and big people? But after watching this episode, there might actually be a difference. Yeah, because I, cause I remember I was like, no, I don't think it matters. I think it's just like uh, an interesting subtitle. But no, go ahead. I think you might be right. <laughs> I think yeah, I, I, think I think we're I, on the same wavelength yeah. here. Do you think it's a reference to Bigfoot? I think it's a reference to the Sicilian Bigfoot. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. Well, let's let's stick with uh, Chris here because what were we just talking about? I wanted to get oh, back to that. Yeah. 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 Um, oh, his his sort of like work schedule because he's so he is Chris in the morning. So I I believe that he's on air in the morning often, and it, we do get a lot of scenes. I don't know if this is the again I haven't been keeping track. He said this is sort of the third time we've seen him open an episode with a broadcast. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how many episodes we've seen yet where he's uh, at the studio late at night. I feel like that's a very common scenario, very common like locale for Chris. He's at the studio at night. My best guess is his work hours are morning, Chris in the morning. Obviously, he's working at night. Maybe he's pulling a all-nighter just because of the, uh, the, the way the moon is sort of like keeping everyone awake. It's very bright at night now. It's like a full moon. Yeah. It's kind of screwing with uh, the whole psyche of the whole town. What is up with that line that he says, uh, keep those sharp utensils away? Uh, I think, uh, take the word lunatic. It, it's derived from... Uh, lunar. Yeah, lunar, the moon. It's derived from the idea that um, on a full moon, uh, a full moon might incite uh, strange behavior from from people. Just the way, you know, the way that the moon affects the tides. Um or has a relation to the tides, I think there's even that statistic that says like crime rates uh, spike during a full moon. I don't know if that's still true, but I think that's, uh, they're not really sure what the correlation would be there, but. That sounds like something you read at the back of a Snapple cap. You know, there's like little trivias to give you. (laughs) Yeah. No, yeah, that's definitely that type of trivia. Yeah. But no, I really like that opening gambit that he was doing. Chris has just given off the general mood of Sicily. Just, you know telling us all how it is and everyone's just going a little paranoid. Yeah, everyone's kind of like slowly losing it maybe. Um, as I said, we get to see like sort of the, it, it's affecting the whole town psyche. Uh, there's a scene pretty shortly after this in the brick where, uh, you know, everyone is talking about not being able to sleep. Um, oh, wait, wait, wait. We should introduce our, uh, what, what we are, who we are. Oh, wait, do we not introduce our names? Yeah, do you want to go for it, Charles? Oh, gosh, uh, yeah. Uh, my name is Charles. <laughs> and I'm Lee. We're your hosts of the Northern Overexposure podcast. We uh, like to overanalyze the show Northern Exposure. It's that 1990s uh, CBS TV series. And uh, we also, uh, every episode, we like to bring in one of our friends or an acquaintance or just someone who has never seen the show before. We like to get their outsider opinion just to kind of see if the show holds up on its own. Uh, We got, I think we have something special for our audience towards the end of this episode. Um, for our guests this time, but I guess we'll, you know, we'll keep that for the end of the episode. Stick around. Yeah, we'll save that. Stick around for the end of the episode. But yeah, um, uh, like we talked about, it's Chris in the morning. It's a great opening one. And then we're going to go right back to golfing. Yeah. Like the dreams, screams and putting greens of Joel just trying to learn how to golf. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I don't think he's gotten any better at golf. He's absolutely perpetually not. bad at this, it, it turns out. Yeah. And he's with Ed. And I love that Ed's his caddy as well. <laughs> Is that what Ed's doing there? I just thought he's hanging out. But yeah. No, Ed no does I everything. think he's caddying for him. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And then they go around and then they find that giant footprint. Hey, Ed. What is this? Is this a track? Looks like a track. Looks fresh. I mean, not that I know what a fresh track looks like, but that's, that's big, whatever it is. What? What? What, what is it? What's wrong? It's a barefoot print. A- as in grizzly barefoot print? No. Uh, more like as in a person with no shoes on. Yeah, so it's a barefoot print. Yeah, you, great homophone that? joke. <laughs> 
Well, it's actually really interesting. In the captions, uh-huh. they say B-A-R-E, bear, the very first yeah. time. And I okay, thought so they had slipped it. up. <laughs> oh, so you're like, wait, this isn't great captioning. Yeah, um, and then I realized, I was like, oh, never mind. They, they knew. They know exactly what they're well, doing. Well, do we actually see the, uh, I can't remember, do we see the image of the footprint uh, before they say barefoot? Yeah, we see the image. Okay, of, so um, then, yeah, you, you could probably guess it's a human footprint, right? Uh, to be honest, you couldn't no, really tell. It was so big. Uh, <laughs> it's I had too no big. idea. <laughs> it's too big for a human. Yeah, so that's, I guess, what we were just kind of talking about at the open here um, for, you know, a fairy tale for big people. Uh, yeah, maybe that is what uh, is the intended subtitle of this episode, you know, in reference to this Bigfoot character. Um, but if that's true, then I just want to know where um, a fairy tale for grownups came from. I don't know. Do you think that's somewhere to, uh, the wires got crossed and someone just saw pig people didn't realize it was a reference to big people and said, no, 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 no. Just it should call be grownups. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know where any of these titles came from. The, the only like reliable source that I have is the DVD. So that's why I think we'll just probably just call this Aurora Borealis or whatever it says on the DVD. But you know, I do really like that subtitle. I just, I don't know where they come from. Uh, but Aurora Borealis is a serviceable title for this episode because uh, that happens to be the main plot line. Would you agree? The plot line of Chris and his new friend Bernard? Yeah, I guess so. I guess that's kind of like one of the driving uh, central plots. Like it's a lot of screen time in this episode. Yeah. And I would definitely say it overshadows Joel and the quote unquote Bigfoot uh their plot line. Definitely, yeah. I think you're right. Um, well, what should, where should we jump in? Huh. Well, um, let's... Well, let's, let's leave both of those for a second because we mm-hmm. kind of touched on them. Yeah. Um, and let's go to something even more minor. Let's go to Rick's plot line in this episode. Did you catch Rick in this episode? No. He's in this episode. What? I promise. So, yeah, the most minuscule uh, bit. I think the last time we saw Rick, um, Maggie, quote unquote, broke up with him, mm-hmm. maybe... Uh, yeah, but we, we haven't seen him since that scene, uh, back in, what was that? Was that sex lies and Ed's tape? Yeah, it was. I think so. That was episode six. Yeah. That was that the one that had like all those plot lines going on. Yeah. It had all those like meandering plot lines. It was after the episode that had a lot of dream sequences, episode five. So the it's Russian definitely going to be episode yeah. six. Yeah. And we've watched so much so far. I know. But where was Rick? Okay. So, uh, when I was talking about how, um, we, very early on in this episode, we get the idea that a lot of the townsfolk have been having trouble sleeping. Uh, there is a three shot with, uh, I believe, Maurice, Holling, and, um, and Maggie. Maybe Shelly's in there. I think she's uh, somewhere else in the bar. Mm-hmm. But they're all kind of sitting at the bar talking about how they haven't gotten any sleep, how the moon is uh, essentially like sleeping with a searchlight on it. so bright. But what ends up happening is uh, someone makes a comment uh, towards Dave, the line cook, or I guess the chef at, uh, at the brick, said something about, uh, oh, Dave's gone. He's, he's left. He's out exploring some nature. Uh, and then someone passes in front of the camera, uh, just like a quick uh, right to left. And the person says, oh, really? He didn't give a notice or anything? He didn't say anything? And that was Rick for like a split second. He has one oh, line, wow. one fleeting pass of the camera in this episode. And he's, you know, he shares the screen with Maggie, but I couldn't really get a read on their, uh, their relationship, their level of their relationship at this point. If they're still together, if they're in fact broken up. Why, why is he the one delivering that line? They could have had any towns. They do have, delivering a, yeah. It. And what's funny is that 
that scene, there's a lot of people passing from right to left in front of the camera. And yeah. it just so happens that it's Rick who delivers that line. You know, maybe it has to do with, you know, the thing is we don't have any deleted scenes for this episode. Uh, they weren't mm-hmm. supplied on the DVD. But isn't there something like um, if an extra, like an, a background extra says a line, they have to get paid like a higher rate? Isn't that like a truth? I think they have to get paid. Sort of truth? Yeah, that, that is. I think, shoot. I think it has something to do with uh, Screen Actor Guilds. Um, yeah, unions or something. With contracts. But yeah, if you get a line in a television show, you definitely get a profile. Yeah, because you, get, you like, got a to pay deliver raise. a line. But maybe because uh, they needed like someone to deliver this line, maybe Rick was just there anyway. And so they put him on the call sheet for one day hmm. and just had him deliver that line instead of an extra. I don't know. Yeah, but... Still, that's kind of weird, though. That, yeah, because you could have just ruins... paid someone else, I guess. Yeah, you could have just paid someone else. You still had to pay the actor to come on set. What if just what if Rick had it in his contract? The actor who plays Rick had it in his contract <laughs> that he would be in. He hasn't been in every single episode. Is that right? This one will mark his fourth episode, I want to say. Oh, wow. Man, you're really keeping tabs on this. It's either four or five. Good, yeah. Um, I want to say it's four, though. Maybe it sticks out in your mind more, I guess, because uh, this is your first time seeing it. Everything sort of blends together for me now. <laughs> um, yeah that is such a mean way to settle his contract though if it said like oh i'm contractually obligated to be in four episodes they'll be like oh, we'll put you in the final you have one line you're in the finale don't worry it's the yeah, big finale oh, god i hope i hope that's not the reason that's so mean <laughs> i hope it's actually the, i would rather them be cheap than mean <laughs> well uh i'll promise this we'll see rick again like that's not the last time we see him so oh um, okay got it i, I don't know exactly better. how he returns i, I definitely remember you know, he's got a continuation, so he'll be back. Um, okay. There's also a reference in that scene uh, to uh, the coffee smelling like fish. You know, everything's uh, off kilter, but, you know, coffee smelling like fish, uh, th- that feels to me like a reference to uh, Twin Peaks. Um, I think it's really? in the pilot. Yeah, the fish is in the percolator in the pilot. Oh, man, I totally missed that reference. Yeah, well, it, it's just this very, like, uh, standout in my mind, at least, uh line from i believe it's the pilot of a uh, twin peaks where someone drinks coffee um and spits it out or or maybe he stops someone's about to drink the coffee and another character runs up and says no don't do it it's the strangest thing there was a fish in the percolator it's just this weird oh that's that weird trademark <laughs> david lynch dialogue yeah. <laughs> um so but, okay so I, I i've derailed you enough uh, where do you want to jump from here no, no, no. It's okay. Um, I guess we could just go into the main plot line and talk about that for a little bit. And we talked about it earlier, but we said that it turns out that Chris is using a recording instead of doing it live. Yeah, he calls it a tape delay, which tape I guess delay. means... Yeah, well, I guess, you know, which essentially equates to him recording the show um, beforehand and playing it. He's not doing it live, as you said. As you said. Yeah, and reasonably so, Maurice is incredibly mad about that. And I think I'm kind of on Maurice's side. I feel like if I paid you to man the radio station and there was definitely no talk about quote-unquote tape delays, then yeah, of course I would be incredibly furious. So he goes off to go see Chris, and Chris is building some sort of a doodad, some finangled project. Yeah, he's got like a sculpture. I don't know if you recall... Um, I can't remember if this was the, I want to say it's the second episode when uh, Joel gives a house call to Chris. This is uh, after Chris is thrown through the plate glass of uh, a K-Bear. He visits Chris in his own uh, stomping ground, you know, his own home. 
uh, out on the lake. And Chris uh, says something to the effect of um, he's a sculptor maybe, or he says he likes to work in metal. Um, so this has kind of been set up in this season that Chris is uh, a metal sculptor. In this episode, he's putting together something big uh, that Maurice stumbles upon. Yeah. And he's also there with a, I guess she's a new character. I don't think she's ever been, she wasn't the first girl that we met no, in the yeah. second episode, right? Her yeah. I think Chelsea. Yeah. He calls her Chelsea, right? Chelsea. Um, yeah. This is definitely a different actress, um, but we get the sense once again uh, that Chris has some way, I think uh, Maurice points out he's like a pig with truffles. Right. Yeah. Can I? Can I just say I? I think I've talked about this before. You do not appreciate this. Yeah, I don't think I feel comfortable with the way that the show depicts uh, Chris with the women, and I'm not saying that that I'm trying to be a prude, but it, it's more like Chelsea was more like a game fish for men. What is ra- a game rather, fish? More like you know, it's something for you to show off to other people, so you can catch this right. giant fish and yeah. mount it on your mantle. Mm-hmm. So. Whenever Maurice made that remark saying that like, oh, or like, where'd you catch that? And like, I can't believe you found her at this location. It just felt a little uh, off. Yeah. And I, Chris, I understand this television show is like, what, what is it? 29 years ago? Right. Yeah, I, I understand. But still, that did rub me the wrong way. No, I, uh, I'm i with you, man. I'm with you there. Uh, it feels a little, Chris, is, Chris feels a bit of a philanderer, kind of like a... I don't know what the well, word hang on, is. Hang on, hang on. Now that you bring that up, maybe I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Okay. But maybe they had that scene on purpose to show that he's a womanizer. So it reveals that he's a little bit like his father, who's also like kind of like a womanizer who went hmm. around fathering children. Uh, Sure. I don't see how that... Um, I mean, I could see how perhaps that might give some uh, insight into character, but I don't see how that would function story-wise in this episode. Well, later on in the episode, it's revealed that Chris, we're just going to spoil it, I guess, in order for me to go ahead with my point. Uh, He has a long lost brother, Bernard. Uh, Yeah, I don't understand how that would affect uh, him and Bernard's relationship if he is uh, like his father. Um, Well, I guess I was just trying to say that it would be like his father because he, uh, Chris goes around and he's meeting different women all the time and his father is going around meeting different women along with the same time. So that's why. So it's sort of, well, I guess what you're proposing is like, it's sort of like a clue almost. Um, to, yeah. Because this is me. Whenever Bernard is it, intru- yeah. When Bernard is introduced, he's not introduced as Chris's brother. It's sort of a mystery that uh, is um, found out. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Perhaps it, Perhaps that was maybe an intention and this is just like the first draft and it was not really realized. Because to me, like, yeah, I could sort of see that as a clue perhaps, but um, I don't think it really functions in this story as a clue. The, the, mm. I, the fact that Chris is somewhat of a, you know, did you say womanizer or yeah. know, he tracks, he, he sleeps around or something. Oh, okay. Um, but So we're just, yeah. We're overanalyzing, I guess. Yeah. That's what we do. That's what we do. I like that. Um, yeah. No, yeah, that is, a, that is a good, you know, I, I'm sorry if I'm uh, giving you a hard time about it. Uh, no, no, but no, I no, think, it's totally I, right. I think definitely um, if it is a character insight to Chris, I could uh, believe that. I think there's some truth there uh, that perhaps he is taking after his father because we come to learn that uh, his father, who he shares with Bernard, his uh, long lost brother. Uh, his father was uh, sort of a traveling man, as they put it. He kind of had two separate families at once. 
is that not a cliche that you have a long lost family somewhere off in like Canada or just somewhere off off in the north? That's almost like a um, such a played uh, cliche. Yeah. Um, well, since we're on it, let's talk about Bernard. He's like, uh, yeah. What do you think about this new character? We're getting a brand new character in uh, the last episode of the season. You know, I'm going to be honest. I thought that Bernard was going to be a new series regular. I thought he was going to be a character introduced in this finale and he was going to have some sort of impact and mm-hmm. he was going to be in Sicily for the next season. Oh, but he, I guess he leaves at the end of this episode. Yeah. So totally kerplunked my theory, mm-hmm. but mm, man, it, it's moments like this where I guess just talking about it now, I'm going to be spoiling it, but it's moments like this where I have to decide, like, do I let this surprise you or do I just tell you that Bernard, <laughs> Bernard is oh, going to come man. back? I mean, he's not going to be there. He's not going to be there tomorrow because he's leaving Sicily. But um, but yeah, Bernard, Bernard will come back. Oh, okay. Do you want me to no like try to hold that in? I mean, yeah, let's try to hold it. Well, well I feel um, like most people who are listening to this podcast have probably seen the show or because there's no way that someone heard this podcast and is like, I want to watch Northern Exposure. Let me buy the entire series on DVD. <laughs> Well, I, some people did that some for, you know, West Wing Weekly. You so. think so? <laughs> yeah. No, for West Wing, it's available on uh, Netflix at the time. It probably still is, right? Yeah, but they were watching it along at the same time, like no, every new episode that yeah, came but, out. But what I was saying is no one's going to do that and just be like, I'm going to buy a DVD copy they, of this show. They might. They might. <laughs> probably not. Okay, I think you're actually right, our right. guest, well, no, I think, I think actually our guest on this, uh, on this episode is, has bought the, uh, the first season. Maybe he bought more. Uh, it's <laughs> well, a surprise. Then, yeah. We'll see. You should go ahead and just spoil as much as you feel comfortable spoiling mm-hmm. then. And also audience, you should go ahead and buy the DVDs. Uh, I heard yeah, actually, please support a, them. I heard there's a Blu-ray um, from like the Australia region. Um, like when I say region because of the DVD region codes, I think there's like a Blu-ray um, from another region of Northern Exposure and uh, it also includes all of the original music from the TV broadcast. That's going to be a problem for us when we go into season two. Apparently, the DVDs don't include uh, original broadcast music. They kind of sub in, you know, cheaper music mm. for the for the DVD of, of season two. That is so random. So that'll have that to be the Australia Blu-ray is the one you need. Yeah, no, I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with the the way they secure the rights for the music. Um, Maybe it's just a bootleg. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, all right. Let's get back into it. Bernard. Yeah. Oh, wait, wait. Hang on. Oh, uh, go ahead. Before we jump into Bernard, uh, I want to talk about Chris and he's building this structure. Okay, yeah. Um, whatever it is. He's not wearing any protective eyewear, man. Really? Because he's wearing like an apron. I remember that much, right? Yeah. He just has his regular glasses, but there's not like goggles. And he's definitely soldering is he doing, items. Uh, is it bifocals or is it uh, like shades or what? No, it, it's a, just, it's just like regular glasses. They definitely like reading would not glasses? protect them. Like reading glasses? Yeah. yeah. No, he was not up to OSHA par. Well, we also, we also should say that um, this is uh, the Aurora Borealis. Wait, no, he doesn't reveal it in this scene, right? Does he? Because Maurice is confounded. He does. Okay, so he no, tells no, he him, does. Yeah, this he is says, my sculpture. It's the Aurora Borealis. I call yeah, it. Yeah, and then Maurice corrects him by saying, like, I've no, seen it up and close. Yeah, this so, doesn't this look is like certainly this. not it. Yeah. <laughs> But it's this um, giant rusted metal sculpture. Um, let's see. I kind of have... Oh, yeah. I love um, this she- scene. 
has a great coverage. You know, it's this sort of this dolly shot that follows Maurice as he's confronting Chris. Uh, we see Chris sort of climb down from this sculpture. Uh, he's trying to hide behind all the scaffolding because this sculpture is kind of raised above ground. And yeah. we're getting this dolly movement of the camera as we sort of look through the sculpture and its scaffolding with Chris sort of hiding uh, in the background. Um, lots of great movement and lots of great just sort of depth to shoot through. Um, yeah. The, the different parts of the sculpture. Do you have any idea what that sculpture is at this point in the episode? Um, do you mean like, could I, could I visualize it or? No, like just what its purpose is all around. Uh, oh, no, explain. What do you mean? So later in the episode, whenever he finishes the sculpture and the townsfolk come and admire it. Yeah, he kind of invites everybody. Yeah, he wants them to partake in it. There's a small scene where Maggie is talking with Maurice and Maurice asks... Maggie, hey, level with me. Do you know what that sculpture is about or what it's even for? And Maggie says, I don't know, but I like it. And she doesn't even know what it's truly for. And that's what I meant to ask. Do you do you know what it's truly for? Because I still am a little lost on it. I am. Um, no, I love that. I love this quote um, because uh, I think it relates to what I like in Northern Exposure and in other media, um, the quote being, I'm not sure I understand it, but I like it. And I think what they're trying to drill in is uh, something doesn't have to make sense on a rational level, but on a gut level, it elicits this response that, that is pleasing, like you like it. I'm not sure I can wrap my head around this idea, but something tells me that it checks all the boxes, you know? I think I've, I've definitely, it, it's hard to vocalize, but I think I've definitely had this reaction um, to episodes that we've seen. For instance, the Think Like a Fish line in um, Brains Know How. And uh, just, I don't know, so many other moments in Northern Exposure that I, I don't fully grasp, but it feels right. Do, do yeah. You, do you, did that, um, was that clear to you when watching this? Or what was kind of your read on that? Uh, yeah, the idea that you were speaking about yeah, that is what I could understand. Like, it, there's no simple, rational way to understand it. It just, it's something that kind of comes to them in a dream and they just have to act upon it. It's something that's natural, something that's just divined into them. And yeah, a lot of Northern Exposure really is like that, where it's not even like a typical sitcom or like a regular television show where it follows the plot line neatly and the audience totally understands the actions of the characters or why they're even doing something in the first place. We as audience members are lost. We're kind of like with Maurice. We don't entirely understand the structure. And even still, I, I watched the episode, at least that particular scene, twice trying to understand what, yeah, what, what the message, what type of theme they were trying to go for. And all I can get out of it was exactly what you're saying. There is no theme. It's just Chris wanting to build this um, this sculpture with Bernard. Yeah. And uh, and I would say, uh, you know, when we do see the finished product unveiled, the Aurora Borealis in its entirety, it does look pretty neat. I mean, we get those jagged, uh, rusted, uh, triangular pieces of rusted metal um, sort of take the shape of mountains. And there's sort of this... Um, 
a lighter shade of um, sort of this reflective metal that almost appears to be maybe clouds or perhaps the northern lights themselves, you know? So sort of this band of uh, metal that goes throughout it uh, lengthwise. And then there's like tiny little bit of bits of like wheels and orbits with uh, different stones uh, that might be stars, you know, and there's maybe a moon in there too. It's kind of hard to actually look at one part of it and be like, oh, that is Ursa Major because uh, they reference that in, in whenever they're making the sculpture or right, it's right. hard to point out and be like, that must be the moon. But altogether in the way that the camera floats around uh, the structure, you definitely can sort of gestalt it together. You can sort of piece it together. And in your mind, it's like, if I'm told that this is the Aurora Borealis and I'm looking at it with my eyes, I can sort of piece that together in my head and form that image. Okay. I think I can only... I can only form the image whenever the Aurora Borealis was being shown in the background. Yeah. Then I can connect the two dots. There is a scene where the Aurora Borealis, I guess it might be a visual effects uh, shot where you see sort of this green and blue, um, you know, light that's sort of in the background uh, during the sculpture. I guess if we overanalyze it, it's just simply man trying to copy what nature is doing. Mm -hmm. So they're making a man-made structure and it's made of metal and rock and just strange material. Whereas the Aurora Borealis is all just lights in the sky just created by nature. Yeah. They're and trying fact, to mimic it. And in fact, almost, uh, you know, Chris's uh, relation to the Aurora Borealis, the Northern Lights, is he doesn't even understand them. Uh, I mean, he actually gives a pretty scientific answer, but in the end, he uh, he submits and, and says, uh, Those Northern Lights are some kind of weird psychic... Uh, Something, huh? Yeah. What causes them to do that? Well, this is just my guess, but I think that high-speed electrons and protons from the sun are trapped in the Van Allen radiation belt. Then they're channeled through the polar regions by the Earth's magnetic field where they collide with other particles and create a brilliant luminosity. What does that have to do with us? I swear, man, I don't know. So while Chris tries to give a very uh, scientific explanation for it, it still doesn't amount to anything in in context. He doesn't really understand what it's supposed to mean. Yeah. Just overall, I think that thing can explain the entire episode, that sculpture. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, yeah. I think it's a very heavy plot or it's a very heavy theme uh, to be weighed and and maybe uh, weighed against a lot of the different uh, scenes that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the scene after that, I just want to, I've been talking about this for the eight episodes we, we've been recording. Uh-huh. I've been documenting it every single time it happens. There's dogs on in the, the street. streets. <laughs> every episode. So what happens in this one with the street dogs? Uh, they just, actually, this one's really interesting because I think they get chased off. Oh, I think yeah, a car drives by. Is this when Bernard enters? Because Bernard yeah. does drive up. It's a... Uh, yeah, it's that song. It's that Credence Clearwater revival song, uh, Bad Moon Rising, is playing. Got to get that moon theme going. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Lots, of, And I think earlier in the brick, uh, Moonlight Sonata is playing. It's like a very yes. techno version of Moonlight Sonata. Though uh, I think the more classic Beethoven one is played throughout the episode. Not played throughout, but I played at a certain it, it scene comes, as well. Yeah, it comes up, I yeah. guess. Um, oh, can we... While yeah. we're on that topic really quickly, um, so the first song we were talking about was Moonlight River, which was Moon being River, covered yeah. by Moon River. I'm sorry, um, mm. Moon River being covered by um, Louis Armstrong. Louis I Armstrong. Uh, there's an interesting line in Moon River where it says, "My Huckleberry friend," and I'm just going to put on my overanalyzing cap on. Okay. But 
Huckleberry Finn had a very abusive, almost non-existent father. Uh, Pap Finn, I believe, was his name. And Okay, so there's some correlations to Chris Stevens and his yeah, father. I was going to say, between Chris and Bernard, whose fathers weren't with them throughout their lives, maybe, I mean, obviously the song was here first, but they do end a lot of scenes with that line where it's about to say, my Huckleberry friend. Oh, um, so it's like to, it's just before they say that line? Yeah. They cut. Yeah, it's right around that time they're just cutting because they always get the line two drifters, obviously two, referencing yeah. Chris and Bernard. Wow. But the line, my Huckleberry friend is about to kick in and they always cut right before then. So I wonder, I wonder if that's intentional or not. I don't know. It's hard to say, but um, that is a good something to pick up on, you know? Yeah. But anyway, we can get back into it. We see Bernard coming in. Yeah, we got Coming in hot with that motorcycle. Motorcycle man coming in. He's got his, you know, black leathers, uh, Harley Davidson, and he pulls up and I love, he meets up with um, Joel is just walking down the street and he says, excuse me, where am I? Uh, Joel's <laughs> response is great. You know, I've been asking myself that same question since I got here. I finally figured out we are somewhere between the end of the line and the middle of nowhere. It's a great answer. Yeah. And Bernard is like, okay, interesting. Uh, where is that on a map? <laughs> and so Joel has to call in Ed, who's like, hey, Ed, this man is lost. Help him out. Yeah. And Ed's... Uh, Ed's got like a friend with him. Did you see that? There's an extra. Yeah, he does. just walks around with them. <laughs> Looks I mean, sort of like another Eskimo, perhaps. Yeah, Ed's <laughs> friend, who we've never met, uh, is hanging out with him. Yeah, and Ed is surprised to meet a person who's black. He yeah. just has just never seen any, and I really like that exchange that he has. So, you're black? Yeah. We had a black logger here once, but he left. Why is that? I guess he wasn't into drinking beer and fighting. Great. So we get the sense that uh, if you're not if you're not okay with uh, getting drunk and beating people up, this is I guess what happens in Sicily. Yeah, I, I also have like we, that. Though, have we seen that? Have we seen any bar fights? I I, I almost said yes, but in I don't. Ed's dream, perhaps. In, yeah, in, in Ed's in, dream, we have, but no, there hasn't really been any like all out brawls and bar taverns or anything like that. Yeah, but. I really like that he has, he has the great follow-up question of uh, why is that? Because that is really suspicious if you think about it. If someone if someone told you that, like, hey, we used to have people of your color yeah. here, one person, but then he left. But then he's you gone. Would, it's you like, would immediately follow up and be like, ah. Uh, yeah. Well, at least, am I in danger? at least the answer isn't, yeah, at least the answer, thankfully, isn't that uh, Sicily is like extremely racist, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Everyone seems to really uh, get along and sort of support each other in Sicily, which is good. Though apparently, um, if you're a logger and if you're black, you you got to want to like fight and drink. Yeah, all the time. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the Bernard goes to the bar to go have breakfast. He apparently hasn't eaten in five days. Yeah, and he reveals that he's driven to want to be here in this particular. Not this particular town, but this direction that he's going in. Some because sort of, of like dream. sixth sense or right. He has like a dream. Something's driving him. Uh, mm -hmm. And as you said, he hasn't stopped in five days, perhaps. He's been just driving nonstop. Yeah. And that catches Chris's attention because he is also having these kind of um, out of the out of the body experience thoughts where yeah. something is leading you supernaturally or just something deep within so you to is, another direction. Is that what Chris is... Um, is Chris experiencing these same feelings but towards his sculpture? Is that what you're getting at? 
You know, I read this scene in two ways. Okay. One is exactly what you're describing it as. Gotcha. But then that got me thinking, and we were talking about this earlier in other podcast episodes. We don't exactly know what brought Chris to Sicily. Yeah. And perhaps it was that same dream that Bernard is having, some sort of hmm. yearning within the body that also brought him here. So has, that was the way know, I read it. Did a... No, Bernard says he hasn't slept in five days, right? Yeah. I was going to say, maybe there's some weird subcontext. Again, I think we're reading way too far in this, but perhaps, <laughs> um, perhaps because Chris is driven to sculpt the Aurora Borealis, this image is being burned into his twin brother Bernard's mind. And uh, that's on the subconscious of Bernard. That's why he's driving north to go see the Northern Lights. Oh, Okay. Um, no, I don't think that's reading too much into it. <laughs> I think I'm inventing a lot. Again, like maybe there is some of that uh, essence in the episode, but you know. Well, this episode leads a lot to invent. It gives yeah. us a lot of play uh, playroom. You're, you're right. Yeah, there is an interesting little uh, dialogue or rather a monologue. Uh, Bernard gives a great monologue in this scene. It's crazy. One morning you're living your life in Portland. You get up and go to work at the IRS. Nothing special. And you have this dream, or at least you think it's a dream, but you're not sure. So you quit your job, you sell your condo, and you buy yourself a Harley. Although you're afraid of motorcycles. And then you head north, with no fixed destination in mind. But you know you've got to keep going and going and going. And just when you thought you've lost touch with everything that was once real, you find yourself in Sicily, Alaska, on a cusp of the new Alaskan Riviera. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, we just get a little bit of context uh, and exposition about... Uh, Bernard's backstory working for the IRS. But apart from that, um, I think his, the actor gets to show off some chops. You know, he's, I think he does a great performance here in this monologue. Yeah, he really gets to chew on that dialogue. So <laughs> uh, really quickly, you brought up IRS. Later on in the episode, Chris admits mm -hmm. that he doesn't pay any taxes. Yeah, because it's like, I think it's whenever they're about to say their goodbyes. Um, yeah. And saying goodbye is hard, so they don't really know what to say. I think Bernard offers... Look, if you have any ever have any trouble with the IRS, I got your back, but um, is what he's insinuating. But Chris responds, no, I, I don't pay taxes. But wouldn't that mean you would be in trouble with the IRS if you don't pay taxes? Oh, yeah, definitely. Maybe that's why he's running away. Like he's in Sicily, Alaska. He's running away from the IRS. Oh, uh, okay. But yeah. <laughs> they've, sent, they've sent Bernard up to assassinate Chris. That's like... Okay, okay I, I didn't go that some. far. I didn't even realize that, but... <laughs> Yeah, that's like the secret spy version of this uh, episode. Yeah. Bernard is... The, uh, I find that to be really odd that he doesn't pay any taxes. <laughs> I could believe that. You know, a lot of people... Uh, it seems like Sicily's off evasion? the grid. <laughs> it just seems like, you know, they're removed from... I think in the last episode or one of the previous episodes, you mentioned that uh, Sicily might be annexed from the United States oh, yeah. <laughs> because of their lax drinking laws on minors. Yeah, because 20-year-olds can drink in bars. Without Apparently any so. uh, parental guidance, <laughs> um, you know. Again, in, in this in this scene uh, at the bar with Bernard and Chris at the brick, we get sort of the first inkling that there might be some sort of connection between the two. I mean, obviously they hit it off, and they're kind of on the same wavelength as far as uh, what they're talking about. They talk about Carl Jung, the collective unconscious. Uh, Shelley has a a great little one liner. She overhears their conversation. 
And she says something like, oh, the collective unconscious. Uh, I think I heard of them. Do they tour or do they just cut records? <laughs> I think there's no response to that. I think Chris and Bernard just kind of like look at each other or something. Um, yeah. But uh, no, in this scene, we kind of get that first inkling uh, because the way the scene ends um, is Bernard and Chris are both sort of deep in thought. They take a sip of coffee and sort of in this uh, mirror-like two shot, sort of a profile shot, we see both of them um, performing the same actions in unison, like drinking a sip of coffee, maybe like rubbing their temple or something like that. You know, it's it's almost like a mirror between. Yeah, the they're playing of them. that. Uh, what is that acting exercise? The mirror game. Yeah, we have to go off of each, <laughs> like just mimic each other's actions. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you want to stay on this plot line, or do you want to go to the secondary plot line? Uh, well, I'll let you take the floor. Uh, well, we've been talking about the what we agreed upon the main plotline of this episode, but there is another plotline in this episode of that course, yeah. is also kind of abstract and not really founded in, I guess, reality. Okay. Because it involves Joel in meeting Adam, the Bigfoot. Yes. Okay. So we, we, we touched on it slightly in the beginning. We kind of set it up. He finds uh, these bare footprints, bare footprints. Uh, sort of a Bigfoot. And it's been alluded throughout the episode uh, that there is some mysterious figure that has plagued Sicily over the years. Everyone sort of uh, writes off all of the crime and all the weird stuff that happens in Sicily. Uh, They all blame it on this mythical figure, this mythical beast, Adam, who's uh, essentially the missing link. Though Um, Maggie is skeptical of its existence. Yeah, I think so is Ruthann, maybe. Is Ruthann? No, because Ruthann... Uh, by the way, Ruth Ann is in this episode. She hasn't been featured a lot in this series so far, yeah. but she has a couple key scenes. Uh, for instance, Joel tries to buy some Somonex from her. It's a had to look that up. That's a sleep aid, sort of like a yeah, yeah, Valium be, maybe. Yeah. Did, did you know about Somonex? Have you ever taken it? No, I had to also <laughs> Google it, but I can't oh. confirm what you Googled. <laughs> All right, we have two sources <laughs> confirmed. <laughs> And uh, he ends up buying sort of a, another, or he gets Maggie to install another lock on his door. So we've got a running tally of uh, of Joel's <laughs> locks on his front door, which he already has plenty, I think, from past oh, episodes. God. He has, I think she calls it the bunker in this episode. Right. Is that Maggie whenever she's installing yeah. it for him? So Joel has to go help um, Ranger Burns. He gets a call. Yeah. Like a house call for Ranger Burns. But unfortunately, he's not in Sicily. He's... Do you remember what town he was in or like so where in the general area was? Because he had to pull out a map to find it. Yeah, so I'll say the way it's um, told in this episode is Joel uh, is walking from his office towards Marilyn, his uh, secretary, I guess. And he's holding a map and he says, look, when I ask for a patient's charts, I don't mean, you know, show me where he lives on a map. I want, I mean like his medical records or yeah. know, essentially <laughs> that's what he's looking for. But um, the idea being here is that Ranger Burns lives sort of, uh, or, you know, he's stationed uh, sort of even more in the middle of the wilderness. He's, um, I believe he's sort of like a fire watch uh, who lives up in a very tall tower, sort of a watch He's tower. a park ranger, I thought. Yes. Ranger Burns, park ranger. Yeah. Obviously uses a device just to get Joel out into the wilderness. Mm-hmm. So he has to travel down there and he meets up with Ranger Burns and then the, he comes along with him up to his watchtower, his yeah. little perch. Uh, let's I, I just, let's talk about Ranger Burns. I, I love me some Ranger yeah, Burns. He's yeah. one of my favorite characters uh, that I've seen so far. And um, 
I'd be remiss not to mention that there's a great uh, little Motown song playing on uh, Joel's uh, radio um, when he's driving up. Um, I'm assuming that this is a part of Ed's collection. It's very reminiscent of, uh, uh, you know, Louie Louie from the first episode. This is a, a song called Little Egypt by the Coasters. And so as he's driving up to go find Ranger Burns, he stops in this uh, very sort of ramshackle road in the middle of uh, the wilderness, essentially in the middle of the woods, because uh, directly in front of him is Ranger Burns standing in in this, you know, I guess you could call it a road. And uh, apparently Ranger Burns has been watching him for the last couple miles come down the road. Uh, because as you were saying, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll pan it back to you. Ranger Burns <laughs> takes him up, takes Joel up to the watchtower. Yeah. Well, before he takes him up, I have to say that I really like the way that that actor decided to portray that scene. Uh, we don't talk about this a lot about how actors decide to the, their choices. deliver their dialogues. Yeah. yeah, their choices, but he kind of looks up and down and like left to right while he's delivering his lines. Yeah. And it's not because of an inexperience. Like the actor doesn't know what line he needs to deliver. I think it's, I, I don't know. It's just really uh, eye capturing to yeah, watch him do that. There's something off about it that I really like. Yeah. I don't think you uh, necessarily pick up on this the first time you see Ranger Burns, but it's totally true about his character. Maybe what I'm trying to get at is, uh, you know, he, he um, is very long winded in a way um, and almost a little timid and shy to Joel. But, um, by the end of our encounter with Ranger Burns, we come to learn that he doesn't really get to talk to other people a lot. He's kind of all alone in his watchtower for most of, I want to say, it kind of feels like he's up there most of the year. Like he doesn't hardly get out of there. I feel like he's trapped in there all alone. Yeah, despite his pleas um, to be- his superiors. Yeah, because it's, uh, you know, it's revealed to Joel that um, Ranger Burns appreciates his company and kind of wants him to stay longer. Oh, can we talk about that shot? The very first shot of when they're in the watchtower Mm -hmm. and Joel and Ranger Burns are on the outside perch area. Yeah, we see them like through the window or something. We're like inside the watchtower, but out the window we sort of see in the background uh, in this watch tower, you know, with with the the forest is so small among them. Yeah, exactly. And the bookshelf in the window are up front. Yeah. And that caught my eye visually. But why do you think they framed the shot like that? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's a, it looked like a very well-kept and clean um, sort of little outpost because, like you said, I think the, the bookshelf is kind of right framed in the front. Is there coffee or like tea and maybe even yeah, like a pie? Yeah, there's like mugs. Kind of looks like there's a pie on the bookshelf as well. Oh, I didn't notice the pie. Or, or some sort of food maybe. I mean, it was kind of hard to tell on this DVD uh, standard definition quality. Maybe we yeah, should invest kinda... in those Blu-rays. Yeah, I know. We need those Blu-rays. I was actually trying to find out what books he was reading, but I couldn't make yeah, it out. The text, SD. Is too, text is too um, small. But yeah. um, no, man, I have no idea why you would frame a shot this way apart from, uh, you know, I think it looks great. So, you know, that's maybe a bad answer. <laughs> but, you know, instinctually, if you're trying to find an, a visually interesting, um, you know, a lot of visual storytelling is um, to find a very visually interesting way to... Um, put forth your information, your story. Okay, that's good enough answer for me then. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my best uh, stab at it. But it is a great, <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because it totally slipped my mind and that is a great sort of composition. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, we have that shot that you described. And I think before they cut or anything, the two of them walk into the room that the camera is in. Sort of like the camera's in the 
inside the watchtower and we're looking out the window at Joel and Ranger Burns in the background and they sort of uh, walk into frame, you know, come they back do. inside. Yeah. Is that they all in one shot? That's all in one shot, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting as well, that it would show them walking along the balcony to come back inside the room and then they exchange their dialogues. Well, dialogues and drugs. They, they do both. Oh, but yeah. What, is he, what does Joel give uh, Ranger Burns? I don't think it's ever described, is it? I thought it was just pills to help him with general Migraines. headaches. Yeah. And he yeah. says kind of, doesn't he say something like, don't, you know, go easy on those. They're pretty strong. Yeah. He says they're pretty um, strong. Because I guess he must have some pretty severe migraines. Um, I love um, I love Ranger Burns in this scene. Uh, he has a brief moment where he could, you know, sort of use Joel as a as a therapist, which tends to happen a lot in this small town. Uh, a lot of people are talking to the doctor about their problems. Uh, Ranger Burns tells him, it's a very big responsibility waiting for disaster to happen. And he, he delivers that line with such sort of uh, profound weight. I don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> I'm definitely trying to uh, talk up this actor, but I love the character Ranger Burns, if you can't tell. Yeah, I hope he appears in the future. Big fan of him. Yeah, well, uh, I will, I will uh, go off of your request and I'll, I'll leave no spoilers. I won't tell All right. you if, he, if he's coming back or not. But I, yeah, well, you know, great We character. talked about how Ranger Burns was basically a device, though, just to bring Joel out into the wild because when he's coming back, mm-hmm. his truck is sputtering, it's backfiring, it's just not doing too well in the terrain, the yeah. mountainous area. Wait, do you mind if I... Because you're, you're totally right. As a story function... That is the only reason, I guess, to, they, they have to get Joel to go into the middle of the wilderness for some reason. But I'm glad they did it. You know, as I said, I love this Ranger Burns character. Is there any significance thematically? Or, yeah, I can't really tie that together. It just seems sort of like they, it was a necessity of the story that they had to get you know, him into the wilderness. But can you think no, of any? Yeah. I think you're right. Because otherwise, they could have actually cut out that entire scene if they wanted to. It could have just led with the scene that I was just describing of Joel coming back. So why did they from not his doctor cut it out? Apart from that actor being so great and that character being so interesting, is there any sort of thematic uh, significance? Really scratching not my head I can on this think one. Of, not at the top of my head for this particular episode. Mm-hmm. Though I think the line you were talking about earlier that had profound weight behind it, I do think that has something to do with why they kept that scene in there. Okay. Yeah. It's a it is a very human moment, you know, and it's a good doctor patient moment, which is uh, something I said is what I love about the show. And uh, sometimes we don't get enough of that. We get a lot of Joel scheming lately, um, <laughs> but I think he does a great job in this episode uh, to show more of hu- more humanity too. And yeah, some, I know this. Yeah, this isn't theme, but I know that it demonstrates that Joel is willing to go a little bit above and beyond yeah, for his patients. As much he as he drive. will complain about it. All the way down it. there. Yeah, he's a, yeah, he's a complainer, but he, he ends up, he gets the job done. Yeah, he, cares about, he cares about people. Yeah, he's out there in the middle of nowhere on a perch just delivering medicine to just one person. Yeah. So I, I guess that maybe that could be a reason why, but thematically, again, a little bit of a... Yeah. I know it's there. I'm just not seeing it. Yeah, I know we're scratching our heads right now, but um, <laughs> let's segue into Adam, but uh, a nice segue into that is uh, one of the lines that Joel has for Ranger Burns in the Watchtower. Uh, Joel is uh, definitely suffering some anxiety. Again, he bought a bunch of locks for his door. He's afraid that this Bigfoot missing link is going to um, 
terrorize him and terrorize Sicily. So he asks Ranger Burns, um, you know, when you're up here, do you ever see anything unusual? Anything, you know, maybe big or green? And Ranger Burns' response is, um, well, I see a lot of trees, you know, (laughs) (laughs) which is essentially all he has to look at. Um, Yeah. So coming back from Ranger Burns, Joel is just back in his truck and he's trying to drive back, but his truck is having a little malfunctioning problems and, you know, just kerplunks right there and he just has to spend a night in there. Yeah, he's uh, so as we kind of alluded to, I guess this stretch of road that leads to the watchtower is uh, some miles in length. And with the car uh, broken down um, and it being the middle of the night, it kind of appears as if Joel might try to walk to the highway or whatever it is, like walk, walk to the to the main road. But uh, pretty quickly after he exits the vehicle, there's sort of that sound of like a, maybe like a wolf wolves and coyotes. Yeah, wolves and coyotes and like owls. Lots of hawks and falcon sounds in this episode. I don't know if you caught those in the sound I design. I didn't. Oh, um, wow. But anyway, that seems to scare Joel enough and he runs back into the cab and I guess he tries to sleep in the car, essentially. He's going to wait, yeah, for, yeah. wait for dawn. Yeah, yeah. bunk there for the night. And then he notices that someone's rummaging in his truck and it appears to be from what I saw for the first time, a homeless man. Yeah, he's he's got the trademark um, beanie. He's got like a blue beanie. Is he wearing flannel? He seems very bearded and uh, just kind of scruffy, I guess. Um, yeah. So is he, I actually forget or I didn't really catch it. Is um, this hobo-ish character, is he uh, digging in the trunk of uh, the truck bed or is he yeah. digging in the, okay, so he's digging out of the truck bed. Okay. Truck of that and Joel notices and <laughs> Joel yells after him, not because he's angry that he's stealing from him, but more that he's just trying to get his attention yeah. so he can help him. It's like, you can rip me off, but don't leave me out here. Like, because <laughs> he's stranded <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. And how yeah. does this develop? Because is it that Joel is left and then somehow the hobo man comes back? Like, yeah, I think it just feels bad for him. So he goes back to sleep and then, the hobo man just knocks on the window, wakes him up and yeah. says, you know, you can follow me if you want, but it's up to you. Yeah, I'm sure this is all told um, because as is um, normal for Northern Exposure, we're juggling a, lot, juggling a lot of different plot lines. So we probably leave Joel for a minute. When we get back to him, he's fallen back asleep. And uh, let's just call him Adam because that's who it is. Adam has returned yeah. and, and brings him back to and um, it's, uh, sort of an encampment of sorts. Yeah. <laughs> a shack, I guess. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's like hot. It's uh Adam is played by Adam Arkin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Do you recognize um Adam Arkin? I do. From, He's uh, in a lot of movies and television shows, but I know him most famously for the West Wing and Newsroom. He played Dr. Stanley Keyworth, the psychiatrist for Josh Lyman and mm, the president. Yeah. And he played a GOP strategist, I want to say, Adam Roth in the newsroom. So, so he's a Sorkin I, player for sure. Yeah, so we're going to play it for sure. And they named his character Adam as well in this episode. And I got to say, man, kind of looks a little bit like David Foster Wallace. Oh, because he's got, you know, David Foster Wallace was, was yeah, wears like the trademark beanie. bandana sort of in his hair and kind of kind of has like an unkempt facial hair. Um, yeah, okay. that's all I could think of. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, I can draw that comparison. Uh, what do you think about Adam? This is a new character as well. Thoughts? Well... He's angry a lot. Yeah, it seems to have a very short temper. You know, we were talking about what the theme was with Ranger Burns. Okay. And I'm not entirely too sure what the theme is 
with Adam. Yeah. How that can you pick up any? In? Um, you know, I don't know necessarily if it's a thematic message, but uh, I feel like we've we've seen this a couple times. This sort of uh, something that the the guest analysts also seem to pick up on is that uh, the show likes to sort of subvert expectations. For instance, you think it's going to go one way, like Shelley and Holling will get married, and in fact, they do stay together, but they don't get married. Um, you know, mm-hmm. just just a lot of. Um, for instance, in this episode, we're given the tale of Adam being this uh, ferocious, fearsome, uh, sort of missing link Bigfoot character. And it's sort of revealed that he's this yapping, sort of like yelling, frustrated um, chef, right? Yeah, but correct me if, if I'm wrong, it looks like he suffers from PTSD. So he does make an allusion to Vietnam, right? Yeah, he apparently was, he served in Vietnam. Yeah, he served in Vietnam, and um, that's where he picked up a lot of his cooking skills from. Yeah. Though my problem with this isn't the fact that he picked up cooking skills. That's not what I have a problem with. Okay. He says that he learned a lot of his dim sum skills there, but dim sum is traditionally Chinese and not Vietnamese. Mm. It would be really unusual if he learned how to cook dim sum in Vietnam. Interesting. Did he say he learned dim sum in Vietnam or at the uh, Buffalo Institute or whatever school for, because he has a lot of different pasts. Yeah, that's what I'm confused about as well, because it's not directly (laughs) said, but it's inferred from the way the dialogue is. Right, because Joel says, he's like, I'm a connoisseur of dim sum. And then he's like, where'd you learn to do this? And is that what you're saying? And Adam is like, yeah, and then he talks about Vietnam, Vietnam, but it's like, wait, you can't, I get it now. Yeah, you can't. Learn did some in Vietnam that's not like a... Yeah, I don't know if the writers just didn't realize that and they just said like, oh, that's just you know, Asian food. I feel be like fine. I wouldn't put it past them. Maybe they did get that wrong. But also, I think it does play into the character a bit because Adam seems to have a lot of inconsistencies. Uh, we brought up, he has a lot of different pasts. He seems to have served in Nam. He was uh, first in his class, perhaps, at this Buffalo Institute of uh, Culinary Institute. And I think uh, Joel calls him out for it. That's true. You know what? Because like, how could you know this if you were, you said you have, you've been in Alaska for the past 15 years. How could you? But um, so it's it's a constant sort of uh, state of disbelief. I, I, I don't know whether or not to trust Adam, but when he's right, he's like, he's very specifically right. For instance, he brings up the Five Flavors Cafe, which is something that, uh, only Joel could have known about, uh, apparently in, in, <laughs> in New York, it's, it was this trendy restaurant. Um, so someone who's all the way out in Alaska knowing about this cafe has some sort of specific knowledge. Um, but should we believe him about everything? I, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? You know, this just occurred to me and I don't think this is actually real. Like this theory that I'm proposing, it's definitely not, but entertain me for a little bit. All right. What if Adam's just like a figment of his imagination? Joel's Whoa. imagination, that is. Well, that's, that's essentially what everyone else uh, uh, around Joel, they don't believe him whenever he actually does get back to Sicily and he's rescued. Yeah, and I just chalked that up as like naturally that's what the townsfolk would believe in, so I didn't even put any stock into that. But now that I look back on it, it could make sense because the information that Adam is giving Joel is information that only Joel Joel knows. He already would know. Yeah. And And, he talks about how he sucks at golf too. He's terrible at golf, which is something that Joel knows. That's, that's another thing that Adam picks up on. 
he, he, uh, the way that Joel does eventually get back to, um, Sicily is that, uh, he just gets back in his car and it starts, right? Yeah. He doesn't yeah. fix it or anything though. When he does talk to the townsfolk later that day, he says, yeah, Adam helped me. He fixed my car. But we don't get that. We don't see that on screen. Joel just yeah. turns the... So this is all part of maybe Joel's imagination. However, in the very end of the episode, whenever Joel convinces, I guess, Maggie and Ed to come with him and it's like, I want to show you. I found Adam. Uh, they get out there and there's no shack. They're, I believe there's still like those beams of like, you know, support beams that the shack was yeah. built on. But there's mm-hmm. no shack there. It's empty apart from the beams. And um, as I said, no one believes him, but... Uh, Joel finds two pieces of metal on the ground, puts them together, and it's a garlic press. And yeah. this is this is sort of the uh, the evidence that Joel has that you know because Adam, Adam being, is real. being a yeah. chef and this garlic press being in the middle of nowhere must signify that Adam is real. But even if we play along with the theory that Adam is just a figment of Joel's imagination, what is that even supposed to reflect? Like a PTSD, possibly uh, Vietnam veteran and or chef. Like, how does that relate to Joel in any way? Again, I, I think, uh, I don't know. I would just have to fall back and say, I don't think that necessarily, um, you know, there are going to be episodes that have strong um, apparent themes. And almost, I think, uh, theme might not be the uh, number one objective on the writer's uh, list whenever they're composing these episodes. Perhaps... You know, as I offered, it, it might be more about subverting expectations and character. You know, I feel like the show does a good job of um, focusing on character over story sometimes. Honestly, I don't know, but I think it is important. I think it's good that we are, uh, we are trying to test out all of these uh, storylines. Because I don't yeah. know, sometimes you've been surprising me, Charles, like things that I haven't necessarily even picked up on. But I guess with your clean slate, you can kind of find these... Uh, these hidden themes, perhaps. Maybe we're going a little too far, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should say a couple of things to note. Well, the scene whenever um, Joel finds the garlic press, uh, mm-hmm. he shares a very fond hug with Maggie. Does he kiss her on the cheek or something? Because he's so celebratory. He's so happy because he proved to himself that it was true. Um, he's like, yes, Adam is real. And if no one believes me, at least I know he's real because I found this garlic press. Right. And he gives like Maggie a hug. I believe he kisses her on the cheek. Maybe he just gives her a celebratory hug. But they both, they all look really happy. And um, Ed is very uh, excited about a garlic press. I don't, I don't think he fully understands the situation, <laughs> no, but he, he shares understand the joy. Gravity. At least yeah. he can, can share the joy with them. Let's get into... Um, some dreams, right? Yeah. So it turns out that with the what we say is the primary plot, Chris and Bernard, mm-hmm. uh, they are starting to work together on the Aurora Borealis because they share sort of this common uh, mindset, this common goal. Whenever Chris hears that Bernard hasn't slept a wink, he insists that they try to catch some shut-eye. And we're back in Chris's camper. Uh, there's, there's a lot of great... Um, it feels like there's a lot of great set dressing in this camper, but unfortunately, again, uh, I don't know why we're only bringing this up now, but, uh, the SD, you know, standard definition quality of the DVD, I can't really see anything that's on Chris's walls, but it seems like he has a lot of sort of like, uh, blueprints and, uh, just like schematics and stuff on his wall. But yeah, it's the first time we've been having an inside look inside it and my 
gut instinct was that it was schematics for the sculpture that they're building. Like Chris yeah. had sketched I it fi- out. I figure, yeah, he's he's definitely trying to come up with a solid plan. Yeah. So they go to sleep right there in the scene with Bernard taking the bag, Chris taking a sleeping bag, mm-hmm. and we're shot into this dream sequence, which, by the way, I really like the way they filmed it. Oh, yeah? Was it done with a steady cam? Yeah, yeah. It was a steady cam shot starting off with a, sort of like a child version of Chris up in a child's bedroom. Uh, we got Mr. Sandman, uh, the song by the Cordettes playing in the background. The camera will follow Chris from his bedroom uh, down a flight of stairs. I believe his mom is calling to him. Christopher Robin. That's According to the dream, Robin must be Chris's uh, middle name because his last name is Stevens. Yeah. It, Christopher Robbins is a, that's a character from Winnie the Pooh, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the, uh, yeah. That's the Winnie the Pooh character. Yeah. <laughs> um, so maybe, you know, this dream is very wacky. So I can't tell if that's just sort of like a wacky sort of happening that would happen in this dream world or if that's Chris's middle name. But anyway, he has to run downstairs. Uh, his mother says that his father has forgotten his balls again. So she hands him a Ziploc bag of uh, tennis balls. Yeah. Visual gag. What is that even? Was that a double entendre or was that something that he actually forgot? Uh, I feel like it's a double entendre. I don't think his dad would need tennis balls, right? Uh, yeah, okay. That's what I thought too. <laughs> I wasn't too understanding of that. Yeah, but, but... It, again, it doesn't make any sense. Not to me at least. But he, again, all in the steady cam shot, runs outside and hops up into this 18-wheeler because um, maybe we didn't say this, but we learned early in this episode that uh, his dad was a truck driver. Yeah, that's why he wasn't there often for Chris's childhood. He was just traveling, doing his job. And he hops into the truck and who should be in the truck, but also Bernard. Yeah, Bernard and Chris are sharing a dream. Only um, so when when child Chris hops into the 18-wheeler, after he enters, he becomes normal adult Chris and uh, sitting next to him is Bernard, as you said. But Bernard has this pompadour and sort of this funny sort of like cheesy tuxedo on, right? It's it's very... Yeah, I think he's described as a like. thin Barry White. He described himself as a thin Barry White. He says something to the effect of, uh, I never like dreams because you can never control the way you look. Yeah. I always look <laughs> like this thin Barry White. <laughs> um, tell me about the dream. Yeah, because I want to hear this from, from your uh, your perspective. Yeah, well, they're, you know, like you said, they're getting into the truck and it turns from child to adult, which I've always really liked when um, TV shows, movies, uh, theater does that. I know it's really gimmicky, but eh, it shows a transition. A little transformation. Yeah, a little metamorphosis right there. (laughs) And they're getting into it and they're just obviously talking about whose dream it actually is, who it belongs to. And who's intruding on that dream. Yeah, they're fighting over who has like authorship of the dream because they're both yeah. in it. Yeah, they're both in it. And uh, to them, it looks like it's both of their fathers. To them, not yet. We, we talked about this earlier, but they don't realize that they have the same father. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that when they keep arguing about who the driver actually is, it's revealed that it is Carl Jung. Jung? Yeah. Carl, uh, yeah, Carl Jung, I think is... Jung, yeah. Uh, don't pronounce the J. The famous... Uh, <laughs> no, it's okay. Yeah, so it is spelled... J-U-N-G, if anyone wants to go uh, read up on some Carl Jung. So he's this uh, psychologist, famous sort of like dream psychologist in a way, I believe. A lot of uh, symbolism and imagery is is Mm -hmm. what what he studied. They kind of look towards him, and it's Carl Jung. 
And it's sort of played as a joke, right? He says, um, you know, I may know a lot about the human unconscious, the collective unconscious, but I don't know how to drive. And they've been driving this whole time. And uh, you can see that Carl Jung does not have his hands on the wheel. And they get into this very cartoonish sort of... um, Woody Woodpecker sort of crash yeah. animation it, sequence. Well, it's not an animation, but they, you know, it's they even act done as if they're very, frozen in time. Yeah. And they even acknowledge that it is a cliche because I think there's even a line where Chris says, no, this is like the typical dream that you have where I'm trying to like connect with a long lost father. That kind of dream storyline. Yeah. That type of dream story. Yeah. So they're even in on the joke. So. Yeah, they're aware. They're very aware that they're dreaming. Yeah. Um, so and so it's okay they, if they're going to crash. They're not going to die. They just wake yeah. up. <laughs> so they just wake up, and I think that's what motivates them to finish out the sculpture because I'm pretty sure they finish it that night, right, when they wake up? Yeah, they're kind of just like sitting out uh, in the night air, and uh, they're sharing a cigarette. This is whenever they talk about the northern lights, and um, Chris gives a sort of a scientific explanation that we talked about earlier. But they do finish the Aurora Borealis. They unveil it. You know, Maggie and uh, Maurice have a sort of a conversation about the meaning of it. Maurice struggles with it. Did we did we mention how I believe the ending of this episode is uh, Maurice returns to the sculpture alone? Yeah, he goes back and he kind of squints his eyes and he's trying to take a look at it, but I believe he tilts his head in a different perspective. Yeah, he's trying to give him, and he does uh, see something, right? Because he he looks at it and he nods. I think he even says, "I get it. I get it." Yeah, it snaps his fingers. He goes, I get it. But then the next moment, he uh, he sort of grabs his chin and shakes his head, you know, kind of like, uh, what's the name of that motion? Whenever you wave it away, he waves it away and uh, walk, he just walks off. How do you think he, uh, that scene should be played out? Like the way I read that scene was that Maurice understood it, but then his next line of reasoning is why? So that's why he's kind of shaking his head and does the waving motion. How yeah. did you read the scene? Well, my read was um, was just that uh, he thinks he gets it, but then he doesn't. But I like I like your reasoning mm. where he uh, he totally gets it, but he's he's like that's not my cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like that reading a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's a small little detail that I really like that Maurice finally catches on, and it's even when he catches on to it, we're not caught on to it. Like, yeah, yeah. We get a little shot of it against the Aurora Borealis. Mm -hmm. We see the sculpture in all its glory, but just as a viewer, we don't fully get it. Yeah. We're the last ones to be left with the puzzle. It's true. Yeah. That's the, that's how it ends there. Uh, I I will say, um, just kind of overall thoughts on this episode. Um, I really like sort of the mood that they set up. We talked about the opening, just the way uh, the colors in this episode, there's a lot of dark blues uh, sort of the night, the light of uh, the moon, you know? Very dark scenes with bright blue, hard light. We get a lot of soft reds, uh, for instance. Um, it's actually very well juxtaposed in the opening sequence of that broadcast. As Chris is um, reading out his monologue, we get beautiful blue shots of the moon, and then we get shots of Chris inside K-Bear with the red neon sign, giving this wonderful warm glow. A lot of times you'll see that, sort of the contrast between daylight and tungsten, like the color of a light bulb mm-hmm. um, in film. But almost in this episode, it's even further than tungsten. It's more red because uh, there's another scene that I really felt this cozy, sort of warm lighting feeling um, whenever um, Chris, Bernard, Maggie, and Holling are playing bridge. Is it bridge? They're playing a card game together. 
Yeah, I don't know if it's bridged. I couldn't connect the yeah. I'm not a actual game itself. I only know a few card games, uh, but uh, yeah, they're they're playing some game, and and the context is uh, because Chris and Bernard are on the same wavelength all the time. Uh, they're killing it. They're just like sweeping, hustling the game. Um, yeah. But uh, what I'm trying to talk about is the lighting in this scene. Again, has a lot of uh, warm tones because we're inside, indoors at night with this uh, sort of warm lighting. A lot of blues, as I said, but also a lot of reds in the uh, clothing, in the wardrobe of this episode. Everyone's wearing a red undershirt at some yeah. point. <laughs> I do do you like, think that's supposed to reflect like the blood moon? Oh, that's a good, that's a good point. Yeah, because the moon can be blue. It can be red. It can be a lot of different colors. Yeah, maybe that was what's going on in the costumer's mind whenever uh, he or she is um, preparing the wardrobe for the episode. Hmm. But I, I do think um, I've seen a lot of great red undershirts uh, in this season so far. I just noticed it a lot in this episode, particularly. Yeah, I did too. Uh, and particularly in the poker or uh, not poker, just Bridge, the card game poker, scene. card game, yeah. Yeah. I think even the table was red. Correct me if I'm oh, wrong. Oh, you're probably right. But yeah, I th- like I said, wardrobe, lighting, but I feel like also a lot of the set dressings, lots of great blue and red color uh, themes or motifs, I should say. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. Do you think this episode felt like a season finale? Hmm. That is a great question. I don't know. Because there's not necessarily something that's wrapped up. um, Especially in the idea that um, it seems like if I had to put a stamp on it, the whole sort of driving narrative of this first season... Maybe it doesn't track for every episode, but perhaps the idea is that Joel is trying to fight with Sicily and he's losing. And uh, in this episode, it doesn't feel like he's escaping or that he's um, settling down in Sicily. It's just kind of more just like things happening to him as he's living in Sicily. I don't necessarily get, necessarily get a resolution or a change in his uh, his predicament from episode one. And then apart from that, if we're kind of looking at this um, as sort of a a love story between Joel and Maggie, which I'm not saying it is, but in that context, there's no necessarily not a lot of headway made there. Um, what other? What do you feel in this episode? Yeah, is it a like season you, finale? Is it? What does it feel like? Yeah, like you said before, there isn't a lot of Joel heavy substance in this right. episode mm-hmm. and you would think with a season finale the main plot line would be about joel mm-hmm. and sicily that's immediately what you would think of that's where the point of friction would be but instead it's left on chris who is shoot he wasn't even he's introduced until in, the second episode yeah i mean i guess we see him perhaps in the first episode but he's not even not given a line or maybe he's not yeah he's not introduced you said and there's no huge uh game changer it's not like a resolution that's happening I, I guess the big twist is that Chris has a long lost brother. So that's kind of eventful, but this kind of feels like a middle of the pack episode. Like it could have been episode four five, six, you know, somewhere along there. I am surprised that they decided to write this as the season finale. Yeah. in in a narrative way, it doesn't feel like a season finale. I think you're right in it. In sort of substance, it feels like it packs a heavy punch. It's one of the better episodes, at least, uh, in my ruling, like in my oh yeah yeah yeah, and we can we can talk about that in the next episode. Oh I yeah, think we're gonna let's we're gonna do rank them, I right? Think, yeah, our next episode will be a uh, sort of a retrospective. Um, we'll have a lot of fun and games, maybe. Oh yeah, 
concerning this one and, and concerning this one being, um, uh, the, the season finale, um, uh, I did find a pretty cool fun fact about this episode. So I found this same sort of block of text, uh, copy pasted uh, among a lot of different sources. I don't know where the origin is or if this is entirely true, but apparently the CBS executives thought that this episode was too weird, quote unquote, and they didn't want to air it. And this quote, I believe, is taken from uh, um, either Joshua Brand or John Falsey, um, one of the show's creators at the Austin, Texas television festival. Uh, But they said, I quote, once we knew that people did like this episode, my partner and I turned to each other and we said, we can do anything we want on this show. And it was incredibly liberating. Oh, this, is, this does say it's uh, attributed to Joshua Brand. That's interesting. I wonder why it was this episode and not episode five, The Russian Flu, that gave them the realization that they could do anything. Because I felt that that was the weird That is episode. a very oddball episode, yeah. But I feel like this one is very... Um, it may not be the... Um, the best episode, uh, like I said, we'll rank them. Uh, stick around for the next episode. But um, <laughs> it almost encapsulates some of the greatest things of Northern Exposure. Dreams, psychology, the idea that, uh, you know, you don't have to be necessarily um, rationally clear, but it's more of a mood. It's more of a feeling that you can instill Yeah, with this show. I agree with you too. I think this is, that's what this episode showed a lot of. This is... Definitely not my favorite Northern Exposure episode, but it's like the most Northern Exposure Northern Exposure episode. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that's that might be what I'm trying to get at, and, and I just couldn't really uh, couldn't really put it into words. Find um, the words for just like you can't find the words to describe the show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's almost like if you try. That's another thing. Like if you tried to describe this show, it would sound bad. Maybe like it would sound kind of slow and boring, right? But yeah, that's what it is. But that's not a bad thing. It's Again, it's hard to explain. I did find there is actually a continuation of that quote I was reading mm-hmm. um, from Joshua Brand. We understood that the audience was willing to go on any ride we wanted to take them. It opened up the whole show for us. And I feel like, um, again, maybe you're right. Uh, the Russian flu does get pretty weird compared to this one. But in a way, after having produced this episode and broadcasting it, and it getting, I believe it got some pretty good reviews too. This was a pretty celebrated show of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they felt like they could do the things they really wanted to do. And I, I believe the second season is really going to um, hopefully wow you. Oh, wow. Because it, so it, it, they it's, take it's influence. They take a lot of influence from this episode and decided to actually just ride the wave. I, maybe so. Yeah. I won't spoil it for you. <laughs> oh, I'm interested. Well, yeah, I think that kind of wraps up this episode. Um, but before we can go, uh, we've got some very special guests. That's right. We have two guests for this episode. And I know it's kind of our mission statement to try to introduce the show to people who haven't seen it before. Um, but I thought, you know, for the season finale, we should get the person who introduced me to the show. Actually, it's uh, two people. My good friend Jay from high school actually showed me the show because his mom, we can call her Miss Charlotte, uh, Jay's mom was a huge fan of Northern Exposure, got him hooked on the show. And around the time that he started watching it, I picked up on it with him or he picked me into it. And uh, yeah, I've been watching the show ever since. It's obviously had a very strong effect on me. And now I force other people to watch the show. I <laughs> just force Charles to watch the show with me. But anyway, yeah. So we're going to throw to uh, Miss Charlotte and Jay. Let's see what they have to say. All right. 
it starts out with Joel and Ed playing golf, and I think it's ironic how Joel's telling Ed, a Native American, how therapeutic playing golf is because you're out with nature, and 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 Ed just kind of looks all around like that's what he's always done, and <laughs> he just says, uh huh, uh huh. The the song that's playing in the very beginning in the introduction when Chris is on the radio talking about the moon, the song they're playing is Moon River. That's the Louis Armstrong version? Yeah, Louis Armstrong. Uh, and it, that song is from Breakfast at Tiffany's. Which is another musical. Yeah, well, I'm not sure it's a musical because I've never seen it. I don't know. But it's, it's, a, a it's a song from a show that okay. Maurice would appreciate. And then they play little bits of Moon River, the throughout trumpet the version, throughout yeah. the episode. And I think that's how they end the episode. But there are a couple other songs that they play in regard to the moon. And in uh, um, Ruth Ann's store, when Joel goes to shop with his generic list and then he throws in a security system, <laughs> she's playing Moonlight Sonata yeah. in the background. And then when uh, when Bernard drives into town on the motorcycle, uh, Bad Moon Rising oh, by yeah. Creedence yeah, Clearwater Revival is playing. Yeah. And the dream sequence when uh, Chris is a little boy, Christopher Robin. Christopher Robin. <laughs> They're playing Mr. Sandman. Mr. Sandman. Bring me a dream. So it's it's dealing with uh, sleep and dreams mm-hmm. and, and nightmares. And the whole episode kind of has that theme, especially with Adam. You're not really sure if he's a figment of Joel's imagination or not by the end of the episode. What do you, you want to say about Adam? What I want to say about Adam. Adam is a crusty character. A cr- what do you mean crusty? He's got this hard shell on the outside. He doesn't want anybody to know that ah. deep down inside... There's a nice guy. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, we kind of know that because we've seen... Well, it's not a spoiler. <laughs> we've seen... They know we've seen other episodes of the show. We're unlike other guests on, on these podcasts. But yeah, Adam will develop as a recurring character, and I, I, he's one of my favorite recurring characters on the show, I think. Him and Bernard both are yeah. great characters. Well, you're kind of giving it away that it really wasn't a dream then. Well, I kind of am, but... <laughs> You did. At the end of the show, it's up to the audience to decide. But But Adam and Bernard are recurring characters. Yes. What about, did you write some quotes down from the show? Oh, Ed. Joel asked who Adam was, and Ed said, he's not a who, he's a what. (laughs) Okay, I'll share one of mine. Okay. One of my favorite quotes from from this episode is, Ranger Burns says, it's a big responsibility waiting for disaster to happen. It's it's very stressful. That's right. Let's see. Whenever Ed meets Bernard, it's it's a brilliant observation. You're black. (laughs) Ed sometimes is is stupefying. But uh, I I liked uh, what Ty said on the show earlier, that he's um, a low-key genius. Really? Ed is, Mm -hmm. he has these intelligent remarks remarks and witticisms and, and whatever, but I don't think he realizes he's saying them. And every now and then, Shelly does the same thing. Shelly does do the same thing. <clears throat> um, something that Joel said about Adam when he first, when he first, when Adam's trying to convince Joel that Adam is Adam, Joel says, Adam's not the kind of guy that stirs noodles in a wok. <laughs> 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 and then uh, by the end of the show, something, uh, Maurice just does not get the sculpture. Never does. Never and, will. I mean, it sort of shows how Maurice is kind of still, no matter how hard he tries, removed from the town. He's not, I mean, he's not truly part. I mean, he is, but he's not really, I guess. But Maggie says the same thing. She doesn't get it either. No, she doesn't, but, but she, she likes, likes it. it. Yeah. Right. I think Shelly was one of the few that 
actually got it. Right. Shelly, in her description of She saw the stars. She saw the moon. She saw everything. And everybody else just said it's big. Yeah. <laughs> nobody, nobody really got it. What do we have to say about Bernard? Bernard is really confused as to why he's even there. He doesn't know. He quit his job in Portland with the IRS. Yeah. Sold his car, bought a motorcycle, and new leathers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which Ed immediately recognizes being new because Ed wears this old leather jacket yeah. that's all crinkled. And yeah. He, he immediately saw Bernard's jacket and knew it was new. And he just headed north. He didn't know where he was going. But when he got to Sicily, he felt like he was where he was mm -hmm. supposed to be. And he stayed there. Mm-hmm. Long enough to finish the sculpture. And find out that he and Chris are related. And the whole show, they're just so in sync with each other. Um, and by the end, Bernard hosts the Chris in the Morning show with Chris. They don't, not they, this, you never hear not it. this episode. But they said, they mentioned good show this morning. Oh. To both Chris and Oh, Bernard. I didn't even notice Whenever that. they walk in the brick in one of the last scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was the thing that you said about um, when the camera was on Joel... While he was oh, trapped in the, in the truck car. in the middle of the night. It yeah. faded. It, it showed the moon. It was fading out on Joel. And it had the, the full moon. And Joel's face was in it. Like he was the man in the moon. Mm -hmm. And then later on when they were at the brick, it was Ed that said the full moon last night made him think of Joel. What did he say? He said something about, did you did you see it? Just You just had to look up and see it or something. I don't remember. I remember the exact no, line. It was something it. like that. No. But it was... I knew whenever they put Joel's face in the moon in that shot, I know that that's what Ed was referring to. Joel is the man in the moon. Yeah, in that. Just They just wanted to bring that Watch together. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so those are some of the things we liked about the show. Did we dislike anything? I don't know. I, don't, I can't say I disliked much about this episode. This was a really good episode. Yeah. And it's hard to say something and it's hard to say something negative about a show that you already really like. I know, especially when you've seen them all and you know you like all the characters and you feel like you know them. Mm -hmm. So nothing they can do is going to disappoint you. Right. Any other, any other thoughts? Well, I'm glad you, Lee, and I started watching Northern Exposure about the same time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't even remember what year that was. Hmm. Must have been 12 years ago, 10 years ago. Seven or eight? It was a while back. It was before 2010. Okay, I'm going to stop it here. You okay. can cut it. I thought of something else. I think that uh, Adam is just as neurotic as Joel, and that's sort of exaggerated when uh, he's cooking for Adam. I mean, Joel. Adam is cooking for Joel, and Adam is fussing at Joel the whole time. And Joel is kind of toned down and put in his place by Adam with how over the top. Adam is. He just way outdoes any neuroticism that Joel has. Okay, and another thing is the bits and pieces of Adam's life that he does tell Joel don't really add up. No. The whole he's been in the bush for 15 years, but yet he's also he graduated from the Bremen Cooking School, school in Buffalo and he was in Vietnam. Uh, doesn't quite add up with what age well, the, Adam seems to be. Vietnam, and then 15 years would add up to 1990. But when did he go to cooking school? Plus, once you get more to know more about Adam, he's done a lot of things in those 15 years. Yeah. He hasn't just been in the forest for uh. 15 years. When Joel and Maggie and Ed go back to see Adam's place, everything's gone. How did Adam pack up all of that overnight and haul it off? Where did he haul it to? What did he have to haul it in? That's never really explained. That's no, it was just gone. Mythology. Like mag magic. Mm -hmm. Except for the garlic press. 
except for the garlic press. And then your other comment about Adam was in the morning when Joel woke up. <laughs> he had uh, he had decaf and regular coffee. He had a choice. <laughs> Gave him a choice, mm-hmm. yeah. And and he didn't like for Joel to chew with, to talk with food in his mouth. Uh-huh. And he had such manners. And, Adam you know. is is a much more well mannered character than uh, it seems to be at first, despite his grunge. I think that's part of the crusty description. Mm-hmm. You were talking On the about inside, him. he's really a refined person, but he'll never let anybody see that. Yeah, so Adam is a man of mystery. Yeah, just a reclusive figure. And I I like what Jay had to comment about Adam, saying that he's just as neurotic as Joel, because that gives us even more evidence that maybe Adam's just a figment of Joel's uh, imagination. Yeah, I want to touch on that again, because I think it's funny that Jay... um, commented on that and and we you know you you pointed that out earlier in in this podcast uh just the fact that adam is sort of playing the more neurotic in this case uh it gives joel an opportunity to do something that's not that you know so we get to see joel i mean they're, they're very different characters adam and joel but you know maybe they share some neurotic tendencies um but in these scenarios with adam joel gets to sort of play a different color. Yeah, he doesn't have to play the ordinary role that uh, he's usually doing. So he's at a five, and Adam gets to be at the 10 at the neurotic scale. The 11, you know. Oh, yeah, the 11. No, but uh, so about this uh, theory of um, Adam sort of being just a figment of Joel's imagination, Jay and Miss Charlotte, they point out that they've seen the show, so they kind of know that Adam does return. Though I don't think that's necessarily proof that Adam still isn't just a figment of Joel's imagination because I could be mistaken, but I think, I mean, the spoiler has already been leaked. Adam will come back. But I think when he does return, um, the only people, the only person to interact with Adam is Joel. So if that's true and Adam does come back, uh, it still may, this theory still may hold that Adam is just this figment. Ah, that would be really interesting. And I wonder if that's actually a... Like if, if this it, is a true theory. Fall that way? Yeah, yeah, this is a true theory right there. <laughs> well, we'll keep our eyes on it, I guess. Uh, well, do you have any other uh, thoughts on, on their thoughts? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I didn't pick up on, and I actually had to rewatch the scene that they were talking about in order to catch it, was when Joel was in the truck and it fades away and his face is in the moon. Yeah, I did not notice that either. Um, and I actually went back and watched it. And it is a really cool... Um, very blatant sort of visual effect with the, I believe Joel is sort of looking over his shoulder um, because he just got ripped off by Adam. And uh, yeah, then it does the cross dissolve into the moon. And you can see for that moment, whenever the image of Joel is still fading into the image of the moon, there's that moment where they're sort of together blended. Yeah, that actually got me into a little bit of an overanalysis because they used a certain phrase that let me catch on to it. I think it was Miss Charlotte who said man in the moon because that's what mm-hmm. Joel was trying to resemble. Uh, and I just realized that man in the moon is just one way of looking at something because the phrase of man in the moon is that when we're looking at it, it's a pareidolic image. It's something that's really vague that mm-hmm. we're trying to extrapolate meaning from. Some people but, see a man. Some people see like a rabbit. There's different yeah. things. Some cultures see a rabbit like um uh, Chinese culture and Japanese and Korean cultures see a rabbit up there with a mortar and pestle trying to make rice cake. Oh. And yeah, other cultures uh, see a man. But the man that we see 
isn't always the same one. There's various interpretations. Like for his that eye man. might be in one spot or his yeah. nose might be in another spot for someone else. Mm-hmm, exactly. And then that got me thinking. It really relates to how the townsfolk are seeing the Aurora Borealis structure because they're seeing it in one way, but maybe the another townsfolk is seeing it another way. So it's really vague, but we're just trying to find meaning within this. Uh, the structure that yeah. we're seeing. And I think that's, yeah, that definitely touches on the theme that we've kind of been dancing around this whole time. But also, you know, that that idea that there isn't necessarily one, only one way to look at something. And uh, in fact, there are many different ways that are all valid. Sort of, you know, again, obviously we're talking about the Aurora Borealis sculpture, you know? Well, yes, but also the entire show. Wouldn't you agree? There's various interpretations to a lot of yeah. scenes because it's so mm-hmm. quiet. Yeah. Oh, like the the show, the series as a whole. Yeah, 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 exactly. Mm-hmm. Like there's various ways of looking at it. Yeah, because no, not everything is always cut and dry, especially with this show. Like, you know, a lot is mm-hmm. left up to, uh, they kind of just give you the scenes and uh, sometimes it's not very story heavy. Sometimes it's uh, maybe more character um, and you kind of form form the story and form the uh, the events in your head. Yeah, you know, after listening to the commentary, I would say that this is a really good finale because after looking at this, uh, I mean, I'll be frank, really over analysis uh-huh. of what they were saying on Man in the Moon, this makes even more sense for this series ending on this on season one. Yeah, it, it's not, it doesn't have sort of that narrative finale feel, but I guess maybe what, what I'm picking up from you is it has more of a um, the mood or like the the philosophy of the show is sort of exemplified in this in this episode as the finale yeah yeah it's got the atmosphere of it just matches the tone and yeah really great commentary by miss charlotte and jave to yeah there i that happened within me they're obviously very well uh well familiar with the show already so they you know they have that insight like a couple things that uh maybe i can touch on um, from their commentary I hadn't recognized that Moon River uh, actually comes from Breakfast at Tiffany's. I had to kind of go look. I've seen the movie, but um, had to go look into that. And yeah, it actually was written for the film. And, you know, it won an Oscar for best song in film, you know, uh, for that year. Yeah. uh, I thought, I I knew it was in the movie. I didn't know it was written specifically for the movie, though. Yeah. I thought it was uh, covered. Precursor, yeah. But no, no, no. That's the origin of Moon River. That's pretty cool. Uh, Audrey Hepburn, I believe, is... Yeah, Audrey Hepburn. Singing with a little guitar in a window. Mm -hmm. It's not a musical, though, right? No, no, it's not a musical. Yeah, I didn't know. Though it does have this uh, musical piece. Yeah, okay. Uh, One thing that, you know, they kind of touch on Ranger Burns a little bit, and... I know we we were kind of scratching our heads um, over the thought of, you know, what sort of thematic uh, or what, what was the purpose of the Ranger Burns scene? Not that we didn't like the scene. We, you know, we love Ranger Burns, but, you know, what is the significance of it in the episode? And I've had a, a little, I had, I've had some more time to think about it. So I have something to offer, perhaps. Maybe you can help me out here. But um, one thematic link with Ranger Burns could be um, sort of touching on the isolation theme, uh, we we have a couple times with Joel, uh, where he feels very isolated, sort of like you know, I guess fish out of water. Yeah, he's this he's one type of person, and everyone else is another type. And perhaps what Ranger Burns signifies is um, if 
if you isolate yourself too much, um, this is this is the result. And we see that Joel has kind of acclimated and sort of um, assimilated into the the Sicily culture at this point at the end of the season. So he isn't going to end up like like a Ranger Burns character, sort of isolated. Oh, okay. So you think that Ranger Burns exists as a juxtaposition between characters of what happens when you don't accept others into your life and the... Yeah, I think... I don't know if that's the exact intention of the writers, but I think it's there. It does, you know, that conclusion can be drawn and that's what I'm trying to get at here. Yeah. I like that though, because it means that Joel is coming closer with the town and it's showing that he's having growth within himself and accepting the people of Sicily. Yeah. It's not explicit at all necessarily, but um, yeah, that could be sort of uh, the growth that we see in Joel in this episode. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Ranger Burns, I like the quote that Jay had picked for him it's a big responsibility waiting for disaster, disaster to happen. happen. Yeah. We talked, touched on that a little bit before and just the delivery is very, very great. in that scene. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So that's, um, that's all of season one. I think we're, we should, we're, we're definitely still going to do the, the ranking and the uh, sort of retrospective episode where you and I talk about season one as a whole, but we'll do that on another episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, please, please take a listen to that. It's going to be our recap episode. Yeah, so Charles, be thinking about uh, what your favorite and least favorite episodes are. Uh, we'll have some other categories, uh, superlatives um, we can think up for that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what a but great word. In the meantime, you know, rate, review, subscribe. Listeners, we're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, um, Probably LimeWire or <laughs> what was the platform? Yeah, it was LimeWire that I thought Pirate Bay. could possibly be on. Yeah, Pirate Bay, if that still exists, that hasn't been taken down by the government. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, thanks for listening, guys, and we'll be back next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Jay and Miss Charlotte for watching the show and being our guest analysts. We caught Miss Charlotte during her umpteenth rewatch of The West Wing, and Jay similarly has been binge-watching The West Wing and Cheers. We hope to have them both back on future episodes. And of course, thank you for listening.